0: Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 140. It is Super Bowl week. We are not going to be diving into the prop bets yet. That will be coming up on Friday. Prop bet extravaganza. We're going to go through 10 of the big ones. There's a whole list of 60 of them. I don't know if we're going to do that big of a deep dive, but we'll be getting into that on Friday's podcast. We'll talk a little bit about the Super Bowl. I had a question posed to me by a listener about David Bakhtiari's future in Green Bay. We can get into that. Jordan Love is getting some MVP love already not even March yet. We're not even really in the offseason, and already that conversation is out there. We'll talk about the Bucks. Kind of a weird weekend with a great win Saturday, a letdown Sunday. Doc Rivers is coaching the All-Star game somehow. Trade deadline in the NBA is on the way on Thursday. We'll go over College Hoops. Badger game at home against Purdue. Biggest game of the year to date. A bit disappointing, but they proved they can hang with a top-tier team. We'll spin that And get set for another week of college basketball where the Badgers probably on the outside or right at number 10 when the new rankings come out today. And Marquette may move up a spot or two after they blow out Georgetown on Saturday. We'll drop a little Brewer tidbit in there. The farm system rankings are out as we enter spring training by Baseball America. There's reason to be excited for the Brewers, but I can feel myself getting jaded with this continuous cycle of top farm system, don't win anything. Five or six years later, top farm system, don't win anything. We'll talk about that. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here, Durham, to Hardy, to first, In time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin! Record-breaking run! Morgan, to smash up the middle, face at the center! Here comes Gomez, around third, a throw on the Brewers win! Here's the snap, he the plate. Plate. And there is your Super Bowl dagger! Booker, of the drive, gets inside, leans in, backed away and stolen by Holiday! Phoenix has to foul, We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. So if you remember on Friday, we were going over the Des Moines situation on the Strange Brew podcast. And I asked somebody in Des Moines to let me know how they found the podcast. Did you seek it out? Are you a friend of mine? Do I know you? And then you passed it along to other people. How is Des Moines finding this Packer, Brewer, Bucks, Badgers, Marquette podcast? And I got no communique from Des Moines. But I'll stick with it. I got nothing but time, Iowa. I'm in year 16 of a two-year plan. I've got nothing but time. Somebody email me. John, J-O-N, dot Hensler, H-E-N-S-E-L-E-R, at M W C radio.com. Somebody out there doing Iowa. I need to know. And the numbers are still there. Unless they're being misconstrued somehow, I have no idea. It's pretty specific. It just goes city by city where you have the most or fewest amount of downloads. And Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa's number three. Still no communication. Radio silence from Des Moines, Iowa. Hey, by the way, happy National Weather Person Day today, which means I get to use one of my favorite Louis Black clips of all time. What does the word meteorologist mean in English? It means liar. (laughs) That one's good, and then the San Diego weather person might be one of the better weatherman bits. And what's the best job you can possibly have? It's being the weatherman in San Diego, California. It does not get any better than that. You got a six-figure income, you're on TV for about 30 seconds. People go, what's the weather going to be like, Lou? Nice. Back to you. Awesome classic Louis Black. Lewis Black was probably one of my favorite comics as I started to get into stand-up comedy when I was 15 or 16 or 14 or whatever years old. Now, I really love Bill Burr. I do love Louis C.K., even though he's on a list now, and rightfully so. But it does taint a little bit of some of my favorite Louis C.K. bits when I look back on them now. Well, I am a huge Louis C.K. guy, a huge Bill Burr guy. I'm kind of getting to Shane Gillis. A lot of folks have been talking about him recently. I think he's hosting SNL soon. But one of the first stand-up comics that I can remember watching was Louis Black and all the Comedy Central stand-up bits he did. And then when I went to Stevens Point, they would bring in an artist or a band once in a while to play at the basketball gym. I missed Hootie and the Blowfish. I'll never forgive myself for that. Hootie is touring, although Hootie did just get arrested. He got arrested on drug charges. Which drug do you think he got arrested for? We'll tell you at the end of the podcast. I actually have to go look it up. I saw the mugshot, though, making its way around on Friday. And they were just about to do a reunion tour or were set to go out on that. You're seeing a lot of the mid to late 90s, early 2000s bands heading out on reunion tours this summer with all of the 90s, early 2000s nostalgia that is its own cottage industry now. They were going to be at Alpine in August. I don't know if this arrest changes that, but Hootie is about to be on tour. The actual old band that everybody had the album from, what was it? Cracked a Review in 1994. It just appeared in your CD tower. You didn't even order it. You didn't pay for it. It was just there. They were about to go on tour. They were at the Quant Gymnasium up in point. I didn't go. It was like 20 bucks. early 2000s, right at the tail end of their popularity. Never forgive myself for that. But Lewis Black, my freshman year, played at that field house, one of the first things I saw. I also saw Danny Glover, and I wanted him to do Murtaugh stuff. (laughs) I wanted him to do Lethal Weapon, like a reading of Lethal Weapon. It was Danny Glover reading poetry, and I sat there for an hour listening to that. It was exactly that. (laughs) I don't know what to make. I don't know if I liked it or didn't like it. It was exactly as advertised, though. But Lewis Black, my God, Lewis Black is going to be here. I go to college here, and he's going to be right here, right the the field house I walk through on my way to class every single day. I did love all those Louis Black's bits and stand-up specials back in the day that were always on Comedy Central late night. It is National Weather Person Day today, though, or should we call it national? Wish I could get it wrong 50% of the time and still get paid <laughs> every time in the comments section. I don't know how there is not, speaking of cottage industries, How is there not a way to bet on weather yet? I have been advocating for this for many, many years in a world now where, what, sports gambling is legal in 31 of the 50 states and at some point will be legal across the board. And even in the states where it's not technically legal, you can find a casino like Potawatomi. They're opening their new sports book for March Madness. And Oneida, you can go gamble there if you're in Wisconsin, even though you can't technically use some of those apps in Wisconsin. You can gamble on those sites. Sports gambling now is pretty much out of the weeds, and with that, I don't know why we can't just sprinkle in, why can't we have over-unders on weather? Think of how much more exciting winters would be in the Midwest, although this winter has been very mild. How much more exciting it would be, though, like when we had that winter storm warning in Sheboygan County, whenever it was, in the first week of January... And they were predicting 10 to 15 inches of snow. You'd have to find one meteorologist or something on FanDuel or whatever the app would be that would be the go-to over-under. Like, today's high in Sheboygan is supposed to be 39 degrees. Why can I not log on to FanDuel today today? And bet on an over/under of 38 and a half degrees for the day. Every day you could do this. I just pictured myself in these snowstorms in Wisconsin when they're predicting six to eight inches. All right, what's the official over/under? We'll make it 7.2 inches for Sheboygan County, and where you would get the official measurement, all of that would have to be figured out. I'm the person that can do that, though. I've got nothing but, like I just said, I've got nothing but time. I'm gonna set up gambling on weather and wait on an email or a Pony Express letter from Iowa. Those are the two priorities for me early in 2024. You'd have to have a go-to measurement and a go-to over-under. Just think, though, of sitting outside in Wisconsin on the patio in a lawn chair with a ruler waiting for this snow to come down and determining whether or not you hit the over or under on your FanDuel weather bet. I don't know how that is not a thing where you can't bet on weather. It's the one thing we all have in common. That would speak to everybody. The trivia question we had on B93 this morning was, how many people watch the Weather Channel every day? If you just total all of them up. And the answer, I don't know if it's believable, but it's I I bet it is. Ninety five million people of however many people in the U.S. four hundred million watch the Weather Channel for a little bit at least every single day. It is the one thing we all have in common. We don't all have the same sports teams, the same TV shows, or the same art or the same movies, but we all have weather in common. It affects everybody. Why would you not be able to bet on that? That's my official push for betting on weather on National Weather Person Day today. It's stupid not to. When you think about it, it's really dumb not to. Think of how much money you could make on it or lose on it. All right, let's get into it. We will do, as I said, we will do more prop bet stuff coming up on Friday. I'm going to get a whole sheet. One of our guys here in the building puts together a pool every year. I think we all put in 10 bucks. You can put in multiple sheets, 10 bucks per sheet. And he's got the full list of like 80 different props. My favorite thing to bet on, and I still have not determined whether I'm going over or under, my favorite prop bet for the Superb Owl is... The national anthem over-under. Obviously, you bet on heads or tails, and there's some of the major things, the Gatorade color, all that stuff. The over-under on the anthem is one of the most electric prop bets of the year. Reba McIntyre, so the country connection to our station here, B93, she is singing the anthem. As far as I can tell, and I'm still in the lab. I'm like the movie Miracle again. again. I'm still in the lab, going over all the different – Again. 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 And I have found six different times, and she's probably done it more than that, but I have found six different times where Reba has kind of done an anthem on the scale or a little less than obviously the Super Bowl, but at a sporting event, something like that. And generally speaking, she is in the 130 to 131 range, which is quick. And that will satisfy a lot of folks out there that get upset during the course of the anthem, which is a lot of people, when they feel notes were stretched out a bit too much or they were making it about themselves and their voice and not about America and everybody gets all fired up. But normally, the anthem over-under for the Super Bowl is around the 150, 155, sometimes two-minute range. The quickest to ever do it was Neil Diamond. And he did it in, I think, a minute 20 or a minute 15. That's the fastest anthem. And I went back and watched that one when we did some trivia revolving around that last year. (laughs) He does motor through that bad boy. If you play it, if you're just in a band and you play it, it should be around 90 seconds or 80 seconds, somewhere in there. So she typically is right there. She's at 130, 131. I think another one, she was 133. The over-under is 86 seconds. So a minute 26, based on the research I'm doing, that would be on the low end of where she typically checks in for the anthem. So you factor in, it's on the low end, it's the Super Bowl. Is there the chance that she would stretch a note a little bit, just a little bit on that scale when you're on that kind of a stage and all eyes are on you and she's already in the minute 30, minute 31? I think I have to go over. If it's going to stay at 86 seconds, feels like such a trap, though. It would be really hard to do it in a minute 24, 25. I mean, you really would be in that Neil Diamond range of motoring through it. I don't know that she's going to do that. I think I'm going over. We'll have the official prediction coming up, though, on Friday when we go over all the prop bets. But that's my favorite one. And I couldn't believe that the from the averages I'm seeing that the Super Bowl bet, the over-under on that, is about four or five seconds less than she typically is. All right, let's talk real quick about just a few Packer notes. I'm not. We'll get into the actual Niners-Chiefs game. The line, by the way... Is now minus two Niners, and in some books, minus two and a half, which means the early money last week and the early part of this week, which for the most part is public money, I would think. The early money is on the Niners. Like we talked about coming out of championship weekend. I feel the Chiefs are at that point in this little dynastic run that they're on. Is that even a word? Dynasty run they're in. I feel like they're entering Patriots territory where you just said to yourself, if you gambled on games this time of year and the Patriots were in their heyday, you just said you don't make money betting against Tom Brady. You don't make money betting against the Patriots or Bill Belichick this time of year. I feel as though the Chiefs are in that realm now as well, even though they had kind of a down year by their standards and they finished 11-6. and And even though the offense isn't what it looked like four or five years ago and they're not putting up 30-plus points a game, It just feels like they do all the right stuff. That Ravens-Chiefs game, the AFC Championship game, was like watching a Patriots game at any point during that run where they had to go on the road and you felt like, okay, this is the end. This is the end of the dynasty. They haven't been all that good all year, and they're not favored, and they're on the road, and here's this Ravens team or whatever the team would have been against the Patriots, and it's their time to make a move and take the baton of the dominance of the AFC, and then Tom Brady, and they would just win, and they would do all the right stuff, and they'd win. That's what the Chiefs did in Baltimore. They just did all the right stuff came up with all the big plays, didn't make any stupid mistakes the way the Ravens did, and they got a win. But that shift in that line means that a lot of public money or whatever money, sharp money maybe too, is on the Niners. So it has moved that line. It opened at 1.5, then it got down to 1. And now it's all the way up to 2 or 2.5, and and there's no significant injury news. In fact, the Chiefs had kind of good news. They're going to get Jarek McKinnon back, maybe not playing a huge role, but a pretty good third down back. He can run a little bit and clearly is good out of the backfield. That was his calling card in Minnesota for many years, too. A good receiver out of the backfield as a running back. They're actually going to get healthier. So there was not any seismic injury news that would move it a point or two one way or the other. That's where it's at, though, right now. Niners are either minus 2 or minus 2.5, depending on what book you look at. I'd be stunned if it got to three. Right now, here's where I'm leaning. I want to do a two-team tease. I think if I had to just bet it straight, I would bet Chiefs whatever it is, plus two or plus two and a half. I feel like this is going to be a close game. So I want to do a two-team tease where we bet the Chiefs at plus eight or eight and a half. feels like, right, even if the Chiefs lose, I just don't feel like they're going to lose by ten. I want the Chiefs at plus eight, plus eight and a half. But then the question is... Do you bet the over on 39 total points or do you bet the under on 53 or 53 and a half total points? If you know me, you know it is anathema. It pains me. It's uncomfortable to bet on the under. It's like ordering, for me, it's like ordering something off the menu that I've never had before. It just makes me uncomfortable. I want to go with things I know, things that I know are good. And betting the over is good. It's fun. And you're kind of root for everybody when you're betting the over. The over on 39, so you'd have to be in that 21-20 kind of game, you know? I, mean, I don't think a game's going to finish 20-19. That would be a push. Or under 53. I don't know. I, I, I feel like the best bet is Chiefs plus 8 or 8.5 in the under on 53, but I don't want to ruin my Super Bowl Sunday by betting the under, and that would kind of ruin it, even if it hit. I'm not sure how satisfying that would be. I think that's the most logical move, though. We'll have that pick on Friday, too. Where would you lean there? Email me. Iowa. <laughs> Iowa, if you're listening, somebody in Iowa, tell me which way you would lean there. I think there's no doubt in my mind I'm going to take the Chiefs plus eight or eight and a half as a part of that two-team tease, but over 39 or under 53 is the question. We'll try to figure that out by Friday. We'll be, again, we'll be in the lab today. I did have an emailer on the B93 morning show. I thought we could run this topic back for the podcast, too, asking about the Packers and David Bakhtiari. And whether or not, you know, Goody was a little cagey during his press conference last Thursday. He was very specific on, we're keeping Aaron Jones. He was very specific on, we are not trading Jair Alexander, despite Jair Alexander's goodbye tweets or Instagram posts from a week or two ago. He said very clearly, they are not planning to trade Jair Alexander. The one that he was a, a little eh on was David Bakhtiari and whether or not they would take the logical course of action, and that is to cut David Bakhtiari and avoid the almost $40 million dead cap it. David Bakhtiari technically is under contract. He is still a Packer. His time is not done yet. He is under contract for one more year. And one of our emailers that I speak to frequently on the morning show, Todd, had asked, do you think there's any chance they keep him? to solidify the offensive line or are they comfortable with what they have going forward I don't know That's it thanks for the <laughs> thanks for the email <laughs> Feel free to email the show and we'll give you those kind of in-depth answers I don't know Anyway, moving on I just don't see that there's any way unless he's going to restructure which could be a thing. I do seem to recall during the course of the year, somebody tweeted that at Bakhtiari or somebody was talking to him on Twitter about that, and he gave one of those mischievous responses of, oh, yeah, we're kind of working toward that. I think that's the only way he stays. I do not think David Bakhtiari stays under the current contract he is on and with the dead cap hit that would be coming this year. A lot of the conversation coming out of the season was how young this team is, and then also how you could spend a little bit of money in the offseason. And the thinking behind that was the Aaron Rodgers money is off the books and the David Bakhtiari money is off the books. If you just let Bakhtiari ride into that final year of his contract, you don't get that money. Now, maybe that's not money that they feel like they need to spend anyway, so it's no skin off their back. You would think, though, you'd want as many financial resources as possible, correct? I mean, this is this is America. It's capitalism. You want as much money at your disposal as possible. The question is kind of twofold, too. Do we think David Bakhtiari is going to be healthy enough to play at any point next year? Goody made it sound like we're not even at that bridge yet, and we won't know anything about that until we get closer to summer as to whether or not he's even going to be healthy enough to play once you get to training camp or once you get to the preseason. It's entirely possible that Bakhtiari would not be healthy until we get to the middle part of the upcoming year. Maybe that would play into a restructure where – Okay, David, when you're healthy, you're one of the best left tackles in the game. Is there a point that's going to come up where you can be fully healthy anymore? Or at best, are you going to be 75 or 80%? But you need to prove it to the other teams in the league, not just to us. So if you're not going to be healthy until the middle of the year, how about we restructure your deal? We'll give you a two-year deal. We'll restructure the whole thing. The dead cap hit goes away. We'll give you a two-year or a year deal. And if you're healthy by week seven or eight, maybe you get into the rotation of the offensive line and prove you're healthy, and then that helps you. After the season is up, you could either sign again here or you could more than likely find a job somewhere else. Maybe that's a part of the idea behind a restructuring. There's no way they let him come into 2024, though, riding out the final year of the current contract he's on with how much money he's owed and how much of a dead cap hit there is. The other part of the equation is, are they fine with what they have right now? That offensive line really came together and gelled toward the end of the year. As we went over, it's no secret or no coincidence that as the offensive line got better and Jordan Love got time, they got better in the middle of the year, and then Jordan Love went on that run where he had 23 touchdowns and one pick, and he torched all those teams at the end of the year and torched the Cowboys in Dallas and almost came up with a win in San Francisco. It's not a coincidence that the offensive line, that young offensive line, Came together, got healthy, and came together and gave him very good protection. We talked in the middle of the season. Remember when the season looked so sour and things were going completely south? Remember we did that podcast where we talked about the five people that you need to see the most improvement for for the next year? Because at that point, it looked like they were going to win four games and they have a top five pick. Who are the five people that you need to see something out of as we hit the offseason, knowing that Jordan Love is number one? Who are the other five? Number two on my list behind the Watson-Dobbs combo was Rasheed Walker, their seventh round pick in 2022. He was okay to begin the year. Then he really had a rough run when we look back to that Vegas game and the Denver game and the Minnesota game. And that's at that point, they started rotating him in and out with Josh Nijman. But Rasheed Walker, the more playing time he got as we move forward to late October, early November, he got better and better and better. And suddenly that rotation went away, and suddenly he started to grade out among the top 10 tackles by PFF grade. Did you find a gem in the seventh round in 2022 who could not only be a good left tackle this year toward the end of the year, could he be the left tackle of the future? And would that save you from having to pick a left tackle with whatever first or second round pick you have? The likelihood is almost every team takes a tackle. I'm not sure. You'd have to go back and look in the annals of the draft history of every team. I feel like every team takes at least a tackle every draft, whether it's round one or round seven. If Walker would have kept on the path he was on and Yash was not the answer, if that would have kept going backwards from mid-October to the end of the year, not only would the team only have won probably five or six or seven games, then you would have been in a position where whatever first-round pick you were going to get or second-round pick, you would have had to spend on a tackle. But Walker's development and how much better he got and how much better he graded out puts you in a spot where maybe you don't have to draft a tackle early. You could look in the third or fourth or like you did with Walker in the sixth or seventh round. And does that also buy you some time if you are maybe waiting for Bakhtiari, if you do sign him and restructure him? Does he even have a spot? You know, if he's not going to be healthy like we just said until week five, six, seven, eight, and Walker is the opening day left tackle and he plays well and Zach Tom plays well at right tackle, where do you even put Bakhtiari? Is he just an insurance policy at that point? There's a lot of dynamics in play there. My feeling is still 85 90%. He is not going to be on the Packer roster in the upcoming year. But if you can find a way to pallet whatever contract he'd be looking for and he feels okay with it and the Packers feel okay with it and get rid of that dead cap hit, does it hurt to have a guy like that who has experience, who at one point at his peak was probably the best left tackle or second best left tackle in the game? doesn't hurt to have that on your bench, right? Have some depth there and maybe save you from having to draft somebody early or earlier. Yeah, I could could maybe see that, but I would put it at 90-10. 90% in my mind. They're going to cut him, they'll save the dead cap hit, and he's going to be gone. 10% maybe they find a restructure and find a way to fit him onto this team, depending on when he and the training staff feels like he's going to be healthy. We also did see, and I put this on the Green and Gold Fan Zone page on Facebook, we talked at the end of the year about how Jordan Love is going to be, no doubt, a top 10 MVP candidate on the future bets for next year on FanDuel. So along with whether or not we get to 39.5 degrees today, you will be able to bet on Jordan Love winning the MVP, and he will likely be a top 10, maybe at worst top 12 pick. What those odds end up being, I'm not sure, but he's going to be on the list. When you click on FanDuel for MVP bets in summer, for 2024-25, he is going to be on there. He was not on there this year, rightfully so. He will be on there next year. Damian Woody on ESPN was the first guy to say he's he's his guy. He's the guy I would go with. Even if you made me bet right now on who is going to be the MVP 2024-25, it'll be Jordan Love. I put that on the Green and Gold Fan Zone page. A lot of people liked it, but then, of course, you've got Midwest Football Dad in the comment section saying, oh, wait a minute here. Let's not just go crazy at 10 good games, okay? Let's not go insane. Like, all right, relax. We're just having fun. It's just sports, guys. We're not. Don't go too crazy here. Don't go all crazy on me, like George Costanza, where he had his head up the window. Let's keep calm here. It is just sports, after all. All right, let's not take it too too strong to the hole in the comment section. That must be the group of fans, though. I think the group of fans that were commenting on that post I made a couple days ago about the Damian Woody quote about Jordan Love being his MVP bet for 2024-25, I would bet a lot of the people say, oh, pump your brakes there. I would bet a lot of those people, if you go back into the archives on Facebook and Twitter, if they have Twitter, were the same people in October that were saying, put Sean Clifford in. <laughs> give, us, give Sean Clifford a start. A more positive reaction there than not. I'm not saying Jordan Love is going to win the MVP, and Damian Woody kind of is saying that, but maybe not really. I think they're just saying this is a guy to watch for. The way he ended the year, the trend he's on, he is a guy to watch for for that award maybe in 2024, 2025. Could you imagine if you won it? <laughs> and they made a deep run. They made a Super Bowl run in his second year. That would be amazing. All right, we'll get into more football stuff on Friday for the prop bets and the actual bet for the Super Bowl. But I am leaning toward that teaser with Chiefs and then whether or not we go over or under remains to be seen. Let's talk about the Bucs. A weird weekend, a bipolar weekend, the Bipolar Bucks. They continued this rough West Coast trip after the loss to Denver last Monday. The loss in Portland and Dames on Wednesday. They go to Dallas. No Kyrie, but Luka was playing. And my wife and I were watching something on TV. I forget what. And I turned the game on right at the low point. I turned the game on, and the score was Dallas 49 and the Bucks 24. I thought, oh, my God. And then I went back to what we talked about. It must have been on the air then on Thursday because we haven't done it. Or we did do a Friday podcast last week, right? I went back to this is why you've got to win those Portland games. This is why you've got to beat 14-win teams because the rest of this road trip is not easy. At that point, it's looking like a certain loss. The Bucks then were lights out after that moment. Is it because I turned the TV on? It seems if you want to give me credit, some people are giving me credit. <laughs> Shall I give you the trump? Some people are saying, people are saying that when John turned on the, the Bucks game, they played a lot better. People are saying that. I'm not here to take credit. If you want to give me credit, not much I can do about that, but I'm not here to take it. We did turn it on that moment. I thought, oh, brutal. They were lights out after that. Probably the best two and a half quarters that we've seen in some time and certainly the best two and a half quarters in the doc era so far as small as that sample size is they just play great Giannis was unstoppable 48 points and five steals by the way how Giannis is not on any of these MVP ladders I simply don't understand. He's never going to win it again, right? Is that where we're at? He's just never going to win it again. Maybe at the end of his career, if he has a huge year and it's been 10 years since he won it, they could they could dig up that narrative, of, oh, it's been 10 years or 11 years. I do not understand how he is not on the short list. The man is averaging a career high in points, third best in the NBA. He is shooting an NBA best 61%, 61.3%. Yes, I get it. He dunks and it's around the rim. That's prime Shaq. That's, those are numbers that Shaq was putting up in 2000, 2001, when he was winning MVPs. He has a career best in assists per game by a full assist. His previous career best was 5.7. He's at 6.5 or 6.6. He's distributing the ball better than he ever has. He has over a steal per game. He has a block and a half per game. Better numbers than when he won the MVP and the Defensive Player of the Year award in the same year in that pandemic year of 2020. And yet every... MVP ladder or MVP odd list that I see, he's not even in the top five. I cannot wrap my mind around that. That a former two time back to back MVP isn't even in the talking point. He isn't even in the two minute segments on ESPN where they go over that kind of stuff. He has 48, could have had 50. Huge double double, five steals. Dame maybe had his best game as a buck. Well, not maybe. He did. It was his best shooting game. He's had his moments opening that against Philly. Obviously, the walk-off winner against Sacramento a couple of weeks ago after the Packers beat the Cowboys. What a moment that was. What a great two hours that was. Dame hits that walk-off three, but he had 30 points on 10 of 11 shooting and 5 of 5 from beyond the arc. He was great at the free throw line. They combined for 78 points. That's the Dame and Giannis combo that we need, and they were using, utilizing the ball and using each other as screen setters. Everything was flowing through them. It was awesome to see, and they win that game 129-117 to 117 on Saturday. Middleton had an okay game as well. Then they go to Utah, and they play great in Utah for the first three quarters and then proceeded to puke all over themselves in the fourth quarter. They get outscored by the Jazz, who they lost to at home a couple of weeks ago. Jazz still a couple of games under five hundred. Not good, not bad, you know, one of those. They get outscored 40-13 to 13 in the fourth quarter. 40-13 in the fourth quarter of that game. They couldn't buy a basket. Dame was awful. Dame couldn't buy a bucket after the showing he had on Saturday. Almost as bad on Sunday. What was he, one of eight or one of nine from beyond the arc? Giannis couldn't get to the rim. Nobody could hit shots. Now, if you are interested in excuses for millionaires playing a kid's game, I've got one for you. If you are not interested, fast forward a minute. If you are interested in maybe a bit of logic and explanation here, then hang tight. I get it. These guys get paid so much money and they're playing a the game, and nobody feels sorry for them out there grinding 60 hours a week or in radio 32 hours a week. I get that. This was the second of a back-to-back on the road. It's the second of a back-to-back at altitude. And on Sunday, the Bucs didn't have Brooke. Brooke didn't play on Saturday. He's out for personal reasons. Nobody has any idea what's going on there. So Brooke did not play Saturday, Sunday. And then Chris Middleton, I guess we're still at a stage where he is not playing back-to-backs. He's not Either Either he's not playing the front end or he's not playing the back end, but he's not really playing back-to-backs yet. I guess that's maybe something that could happen for the rest of his career. In the playoffs, You never play back-to-back, so it doesn't really matter. He is not playing back to back. So it's game two. In less than 24 hours, at altitude, at a place this team doesn't play well, and you're down two starters. You did not have Brooke Lopez, and you did not have Chris Middleton. Jay Crowder and Bobby Portis forced into the starting lineup. That makes an already bad bench even worse because those are your best bench players. Now they're in the starting five. The bench outside of A.J. Green, who I'd like to see more minutes from. I am at a point with Pat Connaughton. I know the trade deadline is coming up. I love Pat. We all do. We love what he gave us in the 2021 championship season. We went over this with both Pat and Bobby Portis when we were talking about trades a week or two ago. I think we all love what he gave to the franchise and the critical shots he hit. I always think of Game 4 in the NBA Finals. I was at that game. They were down all game. Miraculous comeback in the fourth quarter. And one of the biggest threes of that game was a Pat corner three in the right corner that gave them the lead down the stretch. We love him for all of that. It's looking more and more like his time has passed. I want A.J. Green to get Pats minutes. I want Andre Jackson Jr. to get Pats minutes. Even though with this doc shift now, I don't think we're going to see a lot of Andre Jackson Jr. I don't think we're going to see a lot of Marjan Bochamp. We weren't seeing a lot of Marjan at the end of the Adrian Griffin era. Adrian was actually playing some of these young guys. Doc's not going to do that. This is like Budenholzer. These are longtime coaches who have a history of not playing young players. I would be stunned if we seen Andre Jackson Jr. He was playing 15-ish minutes a game for Adrian Griffin, and I thought playing pretty well. He's not a shooter. We knew that coming out of the draft, but he's an extremely good defender, and that's a real weakness for this team. Yeah, He was playing 15, 16, sometimes 20-plus minutes a game. I don't think that's going to happen with Doc. Even though Doc said when he got the job that one of the two, Andre Jackson Jr. or Marjan, are going to have to help them, well, he didn't go to them last night when the team desperately needed some kind of energy coming off of the bench. They had a thin bench already. A.J. Green did have 10 points on three of six shooting from beyond the arc. I am ready, though, for Green to take Pat's minutes. I don't know if, he's even, if Pat Connaughton is even tradable at this point with the trade deadline on Thursday We've seen enough now. We're almost more – well, we're more than halfway through the year. I'd rather see A.J. Green. I'd rather see Andre Jackson Jr. I'd rather see Marjan get those minutes at this point. But the point is, the two best bench players you have, both Bobby and Jay, they enter the starting five because you're down Chris and Brooke. And you could just tell they had lead in their legs in the fourth quarter. They weren't getting anything behind their shots. Out of energy, Utah went big. Bucks didn't have an answer for that, especially on a night without Brooke Lopez. Tuck Rivers did say – at the end of the game on Sunday when he was asked about, you know, why didn't you put maybe some of those younger players in? He said he felt like he should have gotten Robin Lopez more minutes. That's not the answer, Doc. I hope that was a joke. I hope that was a tongue-in-cheek joke. Like Pat Connaughton, we all like Robin Lopez and love that Robin and Brooke are on the same team together again. If you have watched a single minute of Robin Lopez, Robin Lopez in 2019-2020 when he was last with the team – and was knocking down corner threes and doing his T celebration. He was in better shape then. He was still rebounding and blocking shots. He was a usable part four or five years ago that you could give 15-ish minutes off the bench as a backup forward or center and feel good about that. If you've watched any of the Robin Lopez minutes this year, it is obvious that he is done. His body's done. He just doesn't move well. It looks like he's constantly in pain. He's very slow. Nothing is fluid. Of the deep bench guys, people go crazy because Thanasis has the 15th bench spot on this team. I actually think Thanasis is the 14th. I think he brings you more than Robin does. So to say Robin Lopez needed more minutes last night, oof, I don't know about that, Doc. I don't know. Bucks lose 123-108. to They led this game by 12 going into the fourth quarter, and they lose in blowout fashion basically by fifteen. That's the roller coaster of the weekend as they lose 123 to 108. They are 33 and 17. They are 1 and 3 in the Doc era. I don't know if I'm going to read too much into that at the moment, given how difficult the schedule has been, given how hard this road trip is. And Doc has only had one practice. He had one practice on Friday in Dallas before that game Saturday. That's the only practice he's had so far. So it's hard to really say, oh, they're one and three with Doc. This is already off to an awful start. I don't think we're going to go crazy about that yet. The Bucs are clinging to the two seed. They are thirty-three and seventeen. Cleveland, all of a sudden, thirty-one and sixteen. They have one better, one better in the loss column. Bucks are five games back of Boston. Cleveland five and a half games back of Boston. So if Cleveland wins tonight, the Bucs will drop to the three seed, and the Knicks are right there too now at thirty-two and eighteen. They are only a game back of Milwaukee for the four spot. Got to be a little careful here. Things are getting tighter in the East, and as we went over a couple of podcasts ago, this Buck schedule is tough the rest of the way. I could see them with the way they're playing right now, and the trade deadline plays a role in this. We're going to talk about that in a second. With the way things are going right now, I expect them to get better as the weeks go by with Doc, but I could see them finishing anywhere from 2 to 4 with how congested that is right past Boston now. How congested two three four is five maybe with the Sixers, but the Embiid injury he might be done for the year. You've got Indiana lurking in that six spot. We know the difficulties the Bucks have had with them, although the Bucks are six better in the loss column than the Pacers, so you should be able to avoid falling that far. But as it stands right now, with how difficult the schedule is and trying to figure things out with the new coach, I could see them at the moment finishing anywhere between two and four in the East. Again, I'm not going to freak out about the record with Doc. I'm not going to freak out about that potential either because, like we learned last year, seeding doesn't matter. You've got to be healthy and confident come playoff time, and then you just roll with the punches, whatever you are. They want a title as a three seed. They got knocked out in the first round as a one seed. Trade deadline is on the way. This team is going to make a move. Is it going to be a big move or a small move? They don't have a lot of stuff they can trade. We know they don't have a ton of draft capital. Is Pat Connaughton a tradable piece as a salary dump? Is Bobby Portis a tradable piece? Bobby actually played pretty well in that game against Utah, and he has been playing better. He's definitely had his lulls this year, too. We would hate to see the mayor of Milwaukee go. To me, those are the two most tradable chips you could maybe throw in Marjan. I don't know where we are with him now in year two. He showed some promise in year one. He showed some promise in year two. I think he has a confidence issue a bit where – when he doesn't get playing time or he's not out there consistently, he goes down to the herd. He's excellent down there, and then he kind of struggles at the NBA level. Is he going to be a guy that you're going to count on going forward in the future as a person you can give 20 minutes off the bench or as somebody that could be a future starter? Maybe he's a throw-in chip. I don't know how they make it work. This team is going to make a move, though. I don't anticipate a big move where you're going to trade a name like Middleton. I mean, I don't know who who is – Middleton is more valuable to the Bucks than he would be to anybody else out there at this stage of his career. I don't see any major swings like that. Maybe a trade Brook? I don't know. I don't know. I don't see any of those guys going. The Brooks, the Middletons. Obviously Giannis is going nowhere. Dame's going nowhere. Can you package up Bobby in a draft pick, or could you package up Pat in a couple of future second-round picks that grow on trees? Can you throw Marjan into a trade of some kind and bring back a wing defender or a better backup point guard or more size to replace that Robin Lopez backup center spot? That's, to me, what they'll be looking for. We've heard their name rumored in trades with DeJounte, Murray, and, and Atlanta. I don't see how they get a player of that caliber, given what they have to give up. Could you get a better wing defender? Are there guys out there they are going to get bought out? Maybe that factors in, too. But the deadline is Thursday of Super Bowl week. Come on, NBA. Timing's got to be better. The deadline is coming up on Thursday. This team will make a move. We'll see how sizable it is coming up on Thursday. Also, Doc Rivers is going to coach the All-Star game. He didn't seem too pumped about that when they announced that Saturday night. He was celebrating his first win, that first win as a Bucks head coach in Dallas. In that postgame presser, they said, hey, did you hear the news? You're going to coach the NBA All-Star Game. So here's how the rule breaks down. Adrian Griffin was going to coach the All-Star Game. The top team's coach in the East and the top team's coach in the West after a certain date. I think the date is February 2nd or whatever it was. Those are the coaches for the respective All-Star teams, unless that coach was the coach last year. The Celtics were the one seed last year at that point. The Celtics are the one seed this year at that point, which means Joe Missoula, the Celtics coach, he had coached last year. That means he can't do it this year. So it goes to the number two team, which would be the Bucks. which means Doc Rivers, who has only coached four games for the Bucs, would be or should be the head coach of the Eastern Conference come All-Star time. He said maybe he'll let his assistants handle it and he'll go on vacation. Let Prunty do it. Let the Prunt Dog do it. For going 2-1 and and the energy he gave that team for that three-game stretch, let the Prunt Dog handle the Eastern Conference All-Stars. It probably would be fine for Doc to do it like we've talked about since his hiring. 24 years, he knows all the stars. He gets along with all of them. He's got that media presence to him too. He would fit in perfectly to that weekend and all the players on that team respect him. I would guess it will ultimately be Doc. I'd love to see him just tell Prunty to go handle it. Go up the front dog, take control of that team for the All-Star Weekend. He'll probably never get another chance to do that. But Doc is going to be, it sounds like, the head coach for the Eastern Conference come All-Star Weekend. Let's talk some college hoops. Disappointing week for the Badgers. We talked about the the 19-point lead that was withered away in Nebraska last week. Then they have 7'4", the monstrosity that is Zach Eadie. And he's just tough, man. It's just it's tough at the college level when your tallest guy is six nine or six ten. I know Crowell technically seven feet. It's just difficult to defend him. And Edie wasn't even their biggest problem on Sunday. Badgers hung tight all game. We had them plus three. What were they down two at halftime? It was a tight game most of the way. They had a chance for the backdoor cover at the end when they were down four or five. Hit one shot and cover a push for me. Couldn't do it. They end up losing by 6, 75 to sixty nine. It was a good day for Tyler Wall, double-double, 20-10. and A.J. Storr had one of his poorest shooting days of the year. I don't think he hit a three. And just overall, when the Badgers needed a shot yesterday, they just couldn't seem to come up with one. Conversely, Purdue... Like you expect with the number two team in the country, and a team that's likely to be a one-seed come tournament time. They were able to do that. They had four and double figures. Jones had 20. Edie, I guess, kind of a quiet day. Double-double, 18 and 13. He also had three blocks on the day. Like I said, Tyler Wall led the way. AJ Storr had 14, but 0 of 4 from beyond the arc, 4 of 15 from the field. Chucky Hepburn had a rough day, 1 of 6, 0 of 1. Badgers shot 3 of 19. If you're going to overcome a team like that that's that talented and then has that giant in the middle, you have to hit threes. And the Badgers went three of 19, 15.8% from beyond the arc. All that said, they were right there. I mean, they proved they can hang with that team if that's a team they face in the Big Ten tournament or for some reason they face in the NCAA tournament. If you want to go glasses half full, you walk away from that game and say – they can hang with anybody. They can hang if they can hang with the number two team in the country. They can hang with anybody. And they did hang with the number two team in the country. It's a disappointing week, though. They go 0-2. They fall to 6-6, 8-3 in the Big Ten. It's gonna be tough now to track down Purdue for that one seed come Big Ten tournament time. I do not anticipate Purdue losing really again. You do have the rematch with them at Purdue, which is a horrible, horribly tough place to play anyway let alone when they have that guy in the middle in the number two team in the country. And you know they're going to have somebody else, right? It's just like a conveyor belt. It's like the Marshall Mathers, the real Slim Shady conveyor belt from that music video in the early 2000s. They always have, I I say this as a compliment. I know freak is not, well, the Greek freak, right? That's a compliment. They always have some seven foot three or four guy, not freak, guy, That seems to be the next guy up for them. Edie, before that, they had the German kid who was 7'2". Before that, they had another German kid who was 7'3", I think. They always just seem to have that as a part of their basketball team every single year. You do face them at Purdue at the end of the year. I don't know that you can count on anything there on that Sunday to be a win. Badgers have a bit of a lighter week. They are on the road twice, but at Michigan, Michigan has fallen apart. Is Juwan Howard, who looked like he was the next big thing, he might get fired. They are 7-15, 2-9 in Big Ten play, last place. But the Badgers at Michigan on Wednesday, 6 o'clock tip time, then at Rutgers at 11 a.m. on Saturday. How is Rutgers doing this year? Yeah, they've been rough too, 11-10, 3-7. That's a tough place to play though too. All road games are tough in college basketball. I would guess when the top 25s come out today with an 0-2 week, the Badgers will be at number 10 or 11. We'll see where it shakes down. It's too good. If you wanna say good losses, Nebraska does not lose at home. They lost by three then at Illinois, number fourteen Illinois. And they so they hung with them too. And they're what, sixteen and six now too? The Nebraska is. You lost on the road at a tough place to play. Then you lost the number two team in the country. I don't think they're going to free fall here. I think 10 or 11 when the new top 25s come out today. Marquette got a blowout win against Georgetown on the road on Saturday. They have won five in a row. And with the other teams in the top five losing, my guess is Marquette is going to move up a spot or two to number seven or number eight when the new top 25s come out today. We'll see. What does Marquette have? Is this the week they finally take on UConn? UConn, the number one team in the country. Yeah, I would think Marquette up to number seven today. We'll say number seven as our final bet. They are at home against Patino and St. John's. Oh, they have all they have off all the way until Saturday. Home game on is that National Marquette Day then? Kind of an invented holiday? <laughs> I think that's National Marquette Day. They are at home against St. John's at 5 o'clock at Pfizer Forum. Then next week, Tuesday, they're at Butler. Next week, Saturday, the 17th, they have their first matchup with number one UConn. That's at UConn. Then they play number one UConn at home, second to last regular season game of the year. But they've turned it around now. Six-game winning streak, not a five-game winning streak, six-game winning streak since that lull in the middle of the year. They are now 17-5, 8-3 and in Big East play, and I would guess they move up a spot or two when the new rankings come out today. Real quick, let's hit on the Brewers. I've seen some conversation now on Brewers Twitter about since you now traded Corbin Burns, do you make the move and trade Adamus like we kind of expected if we go back to that early storyline in the offseason? Do you trade Devin Williams now that it feels like you maybe have his replacement on the team as well? Do you do the fire sale? Oh, my God! We're having a fire sale! Is it time maybe to explore that? Feels likely, right? Otherwise, you're just middling it. The team has presently constructed, unless everything breaks right, unless you keep Adamus and he finds that he can hit for average again and hit for power, and Yelly has a resurgent year. Even though Yelly wasn't bad last year, with the team as presently constituted, you would need Yelly to get back to hitting 315 with 30 bombs and 100 runs driven in if this team is going to do something significant. If he can get back to that, and then Hoskins is what we think he's going to be, and Contreras keeps to play, keeps playing well like he did last year, Maybe you have some runs you can score in the middle of that lineup. You would need everybody in the starting rotation, though, to overachieve. You need Freddie Peralta to get back to 2021 Peralta, where he could win you 15 games and have an ERA sub-3 and healthy the whole year and striking out 200 batters. Freddie, to me, and I love Freddie. We talked about last week the 2009 and 10 lost seasons where they had all that offense but not a lot of pitching, and their best pitcher at that time was Giovanni Gallardo, but he was really a 2-3. That's kind of what this feels like, and that's no offense to Freddy Peralta. He feels a bit like that Giovanni spot from 09 2010 He is going to be the ace because he's the de facto ace, but is he? Would he, would he be a 2 or a 3, really, or a 2B? That's where Yo was at that time. That kind of feels like what Freddy is. If you don't do anything else, you would need Freddie to overachieve. You would clearly need Wade Miley to overachieve and be healthy the entire year. You would need your number three, Colin Ray, to way overachieve and win you 12 or 13 games and have an ERA below four. It just feels like if you did deal Burns, and they did. Breaking. If you did if you deal Burns... Why not then just follow through and find a suitor for Adamus and find a suitor for Williams and just do the soft rebuild here and see what you can get in the next year or two? Like we teased off the top, the Baseball America rankings are out for farm systems and the Brewers, drum roll, have the number two farm system in baseball. Yay. That is something I would have celebrated more... 20 years ago, I can feel myself getting a little jaded as a Brewer fan now. And in this economic baseball world where there's no cap and small market and not getting the same TV money or radio money, not being able to spend money on free agents. Now that Corbin's gone, it looks like the opening day payroll, unless something big happens, is going to be around $100 which will be their lowest since 2015 or 2016. I can feel myself in the cycle now for the third time. Remember in the early 2000s, remember the first 10 years I was a Brewer fan from the early 90s all the way through the early 2000s? They were just bad. That's all I knew. And in a way, I was happier. In a way, I I knew what to expect every year. They were going to win 65 games. Maybe they'd have a hot streak here or there, but I didn't entertain any notions of a pennant or a World Series trip. Then they had that farm system with Prince and Ricky and J.J. Hardy and Ryan Braun, and they drafted so well. And then for about two or three years there, all we heard about were these guys are coming. Just wait. It's bad now, but these guys are coming. And I remember even in 03, 04, 05, as those guys started to come up, maybe more 03, instead of following the Brewer team, which I did, we always were checking the box scores from AAA Nashville. How's Ricky doing? How's Prince doing? Did he hit a home run yesterday? We were more excited about that. Don't worry. This farm system, this number one, number two, number three farm system, they're coming. Then they all came up, and they, we had a lot of fun. They made a few playoff runs. Ultimately, they didn't make a World Series or win a championship. Then you're back in the down cycle. Oh, don't worry. We've got these young pitchers coming up. Don't worry. Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns and Freddie Peralta and Josh Hader. All these guys are coming. It's, it's a little lean right now, but all these guys are coming. Then they come up. They have a couple nice moments, they make a few runs, they get within a game of the World Series, but they ultimately don't get to the World Series and don't win a championship. And now we're on the down, so this is my third cycle now. As I'm approaching 40 years old in June, this is my third time through the cycle, and I feel that every time I'm getting a little more jaded of, I'm not as excited as I would have been in 2003 if I read that the Brewers had the number two farm system in all baseball. And they add to that with some of the guys they got for Corbin, and we've talked about they've got Gosser and Mizorowski and Rodriguez as pitchers, and they've got Tyler Black and Truria, who I expect to be on the opening day roster this year, these up-and-coming offensive players too. But now that I've seen this happen two times, and you don't make a World Series, you don't win a championship, and then, all right, we're going to have to sell them, and then we'll wait for the next cycle. Like we talked about a week or two ago, it's just that's the small market baseball economics. You've got to have everything timed out right. You've got to have a little luck. You've got to have some injury luck. You've got to have just enough good offensive prospects and just enough good pitching prospects. And maybe it all comes together like the Kansas City Royals in 2014-2015 where you can make a real run and win a title. And then you're going to be bad again for a while like the Royals have been. You just have to have it all come together, the perfect storm for a year or two to give yourself a real shot. And if you don't capitalize like the Brewers weren't able to in 2011 or 2018, then you're fire sale again. And now we wait for the next crop of young guys. I'm getting just a little more jaded every time through. But they do have the number two farm system, according to Baseball America, and that is the go-to for that. I do just wonder, though, if by the time we get to opening day, if they finally do swing a trade and get rid of Adamas and get rid of Williams and give even more seeds to that farm system... And then hope in the next three or four years, as those guys come along, they'll have a chance to strike lightning and make one run at it. We'll see what they do before opening day. But the number two system in all of baseball. That'll do it for us here on your Monday. We'll get back after Friday. We will be talking about the aftermath of the NBA trade deadline on Thursday. We'll talk about the Bucks week, the Badger week as well. And, of course, it is Prop Bet Friday as we get set for the Super Bowl. We'll chat with you then. Have a happy, safe work week.